It is John Saxon's Story, a podcast. The book read by the author Nikki Hayes and podcasting host Jenny Hatch. Today we will be covering chapter one, A Fitful Start. But before we begin the chapter, I wanted to ask Nikki a couple of questions about the people who purchased Saxon Math from John's Children. Nikki, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jenny, for having me back. We are starting so excited today, Chapter 1, which is titled A Fitful Start. But before we dive in, could you give us the history of the purchase of John's company and explain why a big, huge math company would want to perhaps ride for a while on his coattails, calling their books Saxon books, when in fact they almost immediately after purchase started messing with the texts? You know, I wish I could give you the reason other than uh, what we have discussed in the past, that there is so much corruption in textbook publishing in particular, both at the college and the K-12 levels, that if you don't play their game and bend to their will, then they're going to destroy you. And so when they bought John Saxon's program in 2004, John had died in 1996, his children, his four children tried really hard to keep the company going. But as I've also explained in times past, three of the children are doctors, were doctors, and one is a pharmacist and they had families. And it was just really too difficult for them to try to maintain the company at their father's level. And so they were told and, and um, you know, Harcourt Brace bought the company the first time and told them that they would maintain the, the level, the quality of the John Saxon books, because obviously anybody with any sense would know that there's a niche in the area of United States textbooks that wanted the Saxon program. It would be stupid to undermine it. But if your hatred for a program is so much greater, the love of children who books and the hatred. I'm sorry, going... Nikki, you're, break... you're breaking up. So if you could go back oh. to the for the okay. for the people who wanted to buy it. For the people who wanted to buy it, I think they thought they would be able to, like we said before, turn it into their thing. But I really wanted to make sure this gets heard when people hate something or hate a person more than they love what they're doing for children then their hatred is going to win and so started messing what was going to be in the saxon books and stephen refused Stephen hake refused to participate in that fortunately the authors of the Saxon books maintained their ownership of the books, even though the company bought the comp bought the Saxon company. So the authors were able to insist that their books maintain the Saxon standard, and there has been pressure ever since for them to change. So then Houghton Mifflin came in and bought absorbed Harcourt Brace, which is what happens in textbook companies. They just keep eating each other and 
they produced a new Saxon algebra book, which the fourth edition, which was not at all true Saxon, but they sold it under the Saxon name. Well, then what my understanding is about two years ago, they quit advertising the Saxon product. And so the sales for the owner, for the authors dropped seriously. And what we see now is they have just slowly let it die, their own little death. And the reason they do it is what I said before, their hatred for John Saxon and for his success are so much greater than their love for what can be done for children. They're willing to take the losses. Yes, they are. And as I told you before, I have a friend in Utah who has two boys in a charter school that Saxon books are the cornerstone of that school. And she was informed by the school that in the fall of 2023, that they're going to be having some difficulty getting their hands on the Saxon materials. So I think the schools are already being told you're going to have to move to another curriculum because it sounds like they're phasing out the Saxon programs completely. It would seem that way. And um, I'm going to, as I said earlier, I'm going to try desperately to get a hold of Stephen Hake and talk with him in person and see if there's anything going on that then I can tell you next week. And if not, then I'll have to tell you we don't have anything going on. Um, It's breaking my heart, but it's kind of like the old thing of, and I just have to say this, when you hate, when you hate more than you love, uh, you're willing to destroy. And there's so much destruction in the lives of our young people. I was on a podcast the other night when I was explaining our new our new show with, with the host, and I said, how many young men and women have started at a university thinking that they were scientifically minded, that they were creative in their mathematics, only to be set straight by an, a placement test that informed them they knew very little about college algebra. In fact, they had to do remedial classes and basically start over because for 13 years they had been gaslit by their educators in their schools and told that they were smart and even given good grades. But then they get to college and find out, oh, I don't know anything. How many of those children have been demoralized enough to quit school? And the host said, oh, that's all my friends. Yeah. 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 It's um, well, and remedial, the remedial, uh, we've talked about this a little bit before, remedial education, remedial math in particular, is a billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar business in this United States. And um, it's when you have students who have been graded on effort rather than results, which is what the new math is, uh, kids are given a grade as long as they do some work of some kind on the paper. It doesn't have to be mathematically. It's just they so therefore wonder why and remedial, which they have paid for Nikki, separately. Nikki, I just, Nikki, I just lost yes. all of that. And it's, it's so funny to me because as I was editing last week's show, it was where we were making the most important points that these demons came in and messed with the sound. 
And so here we are again, you're making this incredibly important point and it gets all fuzzy and bubbly. So say it again, just so whoever's doing this knows we're on to you. We know what you're doing. Go ahead and say that again. Okay. Basically saying that when students are taking math today, the whole point is to grade them on effort, not on correct results. As long as they do something on the paper, they get a good grade, like an A, because, well, they made an effort. And then when they cannot do math to, for entrance into college, they have to take remedial math, which is paid separately and does not count toward graduation. And most of them, I would say 70% of them of the statistics I've seen, have then dropped out of whatever they wanted to go into, say some scientific field or a field that required some math, and they've not been able to achieve what they want to do in college. And many of them drop out and quit because they feel so demoralized. This is true. This is not made up. So what we have to do is realize that the remedial $40 billion remedial business in America is making money off of kids' backs while people don't care. That's right. And that's what I was trying to express during this podcast at the Pangburn Hangout the other night. And as I told the story, there was someone who uses the Common Core as an educator, as a math teacher in the middle school level. And he was very defensive about what they do. And as I explained how the, the families have been sold this promise, oh, we're going to teach algebra to your elementary age students. I said, children in elementary school do not have the ability to think abstractly. You should not even try to introduce algebra until they're in middle school and only for the brightest students. And it's by about the ninth grade that they're solid in their ability to, to think abstractedly. And so to try to introduce this at the lower grades, this is a superior program because we're going to have them doing calculus and physics in the elementary school. Again, the parents are being over, oversold on what these programs can do. And then the under delivery is so so huge that it's it's sometimes you know till high school before the parents get a clue oh my gosh my child does not know anything and that's where they hire the private tutors and get them in the special math camps and other situations to fill in the gaps but it's very difficult to fill in the gaps when there's no foundation there of arithmetic and fractions and decimals if you don't have that hardwired into your mind automatically it is almost impossible to do the higher level mathematics. Well, and, and I'm gonna piggyback on what you just were talking about with saying that kids can do all this advanced thinking or, or critical thinking at an early age. It is scientifically stated that children do not know how to have their brain developed until about their 11, 12 years old, in middle school, their brain just starts developing to accept critical thinking ability or abstract thinking. And so to push those kinds of materials down on children, it turns kids off of math. It turns them off and it turns parents angry. And why do people do that? I just keep saying the need for power, the need for control over a from a lot of people what they're doing to our children is so, it's professional negligence, professional negligence, and I just cruelty, 
I just think it's cruel to make a kid think he's stupid because he cannot understand abstractly in the fifth grade. Well, it also causes stress disorders and anxiety out the years. And this is the other side of it, the, the children who are coming down with all of these mental illnesses and pathologies because they're being expected to, to do something they cannot do. And, and that side of it, too. Well, we have a fix for that. It's called a psychiatric med. That is not the fix in this situation. This, the fix is telling the truth. Well, truth is hard to come by in education. And Jenny, after my 38 years in education, I can tell you it's frightening. If you could, if, if a lot of parents could just sit in classrooms, then what's sorry, you're breaking up again. Okay. If a lot I'm of parents, not, what? A lot of parents, if they could spend a couple of days one week sometime to just observe what's going on in the classrooms, I think they would be stunned. And I'm not pointing a finger at teachers or anybody else because system and it's all the part of the system that are now being rotted away. Well, as sobering and sad as all of that is, there is hope. And I see it in the numbers of families who are homeschooling who are taking on the responsibility and the task of teaching their own. There are still good private schools and charter schools that are sticking with true phonics and real math. And that is the hope for the future. But I am, I am a populist. I want to see these solid curriculums used in every classroom in America and the world at large. I want there to be solid, real education. And the taxpayers are being defrauded because our tax dollars pay for all of this madness. And I think on some level, it would be appropriate to have a class action lawsuit against the math industry, the textbook companies on just racketeering alone, but fraud, deception, there's been so much money wasted. And really for me, it's the lives that have been derailed and ruined that is the true cost of this whole big juggernaut. And I agree, and I have to go back and say, I do apologize because I can get very angry when I'm thinking about what's going on. But you brought up a very good point that we do have some good charter schools, some good private schools. And there are even some, a lot of the smaller schools are still trying to be as good as what we would want them to be. So as angry as I sounded a while ago, I need to say there is hope. There's always hope. And what we have to do, what I want to do, is help the people who are out there struggling and wanting to make a difference. That's my hope, too. Well, let's read this chapter one. It's basically John's childhood. And boy, he was he was a kick in the pants. Let's go ahead and begin a fitful start. Even then, being lied to as a child bothered me. Why don't you read the first paragraph? Okay. John enjoyed a good story, but he was even better at telling one. He could weave what seemed to be disparate events into a rich and complete image. He could recall minute details of childhood events and adventures, often being painfully honest about those memories. He was good enough 
are good about trying to smooth over such situations, however, especially when they involved his father. His first real childhood memory was, as a four-year-old, crying in the arms of a policeman after he got lost at a fair in, oh gosh, I don't know how to say this. How do you say the word? Okeechobee. Okeechobee, Florida. His father had moved the family there in 1927 to open a real estate business. My daddy was a promoter, but he didn't have the touch for handling money. Land prices collapsed and his real estate business went bust. He lost everything. We went back to live with Mimi. Is it Mimi or Mimi? Mimi like Timmy. I'm sorry, Mimi like Timmy. We went back to live with Mimi's mama. Sounds like his grandma. (laughs) Daddy would shoot ducks out of the front of the car for us. He got a job as principal of the high school in Moultrie. We have to remember they didn't have to have a college degree to be an administrator back then. His father, his father then was hired as superintendent in Quitman, Georgia. I remember I was six or seven years old and daddy woke me up about two in the morning to see the school building on fire. There was this big tube that had just been finished that was supposed to be a fire escape and we kids were supposed to use it the next day. But he grinned. Some other boys and I had already done that the day of the fire. Before John started the first grade at that school, he went to visit the classroom. The first graders were allowed to shoot bows and arrows, so the teacher gave him a bow and some arrows to shoot. After using the bow, John said the teacher bragged on him, saying he did better than any of her first graders, and she was going to give him the bow and arrows. I remember... That was the first lie I recognized from a grown person. I knew there was no way I could shoot that bow and arrow better than all the first graders. Even then, being lied to as a child bothered me. In the second grade, John decided to wear no shoes to school the whole year. In those days, kids didn't wear shoes to school. He said, but in the winter, you'd have to wear shoes. I made it until December 13th. He remembered a friend who had a pimple that developed into blood poisoning and died. We didn't have penicillin then. Otherwise, John said everything and equipment was just like God intended. It was like I was a little boy in Nazareth. That same year, John learned, but didn't realize it yet, what parent involvement meant to a student's education. Mimi often stood behind him at his desk at home and tapped him on the head or wrist with a pencil to keep his attention. In a 1995 radio interview, John said, if a student is not wildly enthusiastic, a parent has to do what my mama did with me. She made me do my homework. He said one time she was teaching, this is hilarious. He said one time she was teaching him to spell and she said, spell cat. And I said, C-A-T. She said, spell us. And I said, I didn't know how. She said, U-S. Then she said, spell rat. And I said, R-A-T. To his surprise, she again asked him to spell us. And he said to her, I just did. John said she just kept on coming back to us because she was not getting my attention. He told about visiting the house where that specific learning event took place. 
I lived at 201 South Court Street in Quitman in 1931. Last year, I was back there and asked the lady if I could walk in the house where I had lived for four years. I could pick out the places on the floor where the two parts of the pencil fell when it was broken over my head for not being able to spell us until about the tenth time Mimi asked me to spell it. We just kept working on spelling the word us. <laughs> the Depression years were not as hard on the Saxon family since his father's contract as superintendent of Quitman Schools had been renewed for 1933. Under a December 8, 1932 newspaper headline that declared greatest unemployment crisis of all times, there was an announcement for salaries listed for Quitman school teachers. It stated that Superintendent J. Harold Saxon would earn $3,000 yearly or $333.33 per month. In 1934, when he was 11 years old, John developed lockjaw from stepping on a ragged metal window weight in a burned-down house. Even though he almost died, he said he woke up about 2 o'clock one morning and saw Mimi sitting in a chair in his room. He said to her, let's tell jokes. He said the only joke that Mimi knew was about a Catholic woman running to church and asking a little boy, if mass were out, no, but your placket is open, the little boy said. John didn't know what that was, but it was all Mimi could come up with, and that satisfied him. He learned later that a placket is an opening in a woman's clothing, such as a skirt or a blouse. In 1936, his father was allowed to take a paid trip to a national convention in Portland, Oregon. Besides Mimi and the two kids, his father's secretary made the road trip with them across the country. Those cars had narrow seats, he recalled. He recalled John, and of course, we had no air conditioning. They stopped in Juarez, Mexico, because Mimi and Daddy wanted to see a Mexican nightclub. They discovered it was a disappointing experience. In Washington, the kids saw snow for the first time that was on Mount Rainier. He recalls how it was going okay, it was okay going out west, but it was really hot in Kansas on the return trip. I remember there were grasshoppers everywhere. They would open the vent under the dashboard and put a pan of ice in front of it, trying to cool off the car's interior. In Kansas City, it was so hot they took the mattresses from the motel and put them outside to sleep. When they got home, they were one mile short of 10,000 miles. So we got back in the car and drove one more mile. <laughs> John saw it as all a great adventure. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Then when John was in the eighth grade, his mother was appointed head of crediting agency for schools, a political job in return for his father's support of Ed Rivers, who was elected governor of Georgia. That meant the family had to move to Athens where John would be in the ninth grade. Because of John's small size, and evidently because there was something wrong with my growth, his parents decided to have him repeat the eighth grade. None of the kids knew him, his parents surmised, so it wouldn't be a big deal. He didn't grow much, as the family had hoped. In fact, when he was graduated from high school, he was five foot seven inches and weighed about 100 pounds. 
John's scrawny size didn't keep him from trying to win a boxing medal, though, without fighting. He had thought no one would be in his weight category. But a boy signed up and beat the hell out of me. <laughs> <laughs> when, when they first moved to Athens, they rented a house, but Mimi thought that was a waste of money. And they decided to buy a house. Mimi was good at pinching money, he explained, because Daddy didn't make much. This was about 1938. Mimi also took in five college boys as roomers, not boarders, because we didn't provide food. The boys each paid $10 a month. Mimi wasn't too proud to run a rooming house, he said. Although Mimi was a certified teacher, it was common in that era for women teachers to have to quit their jobs if they married. While in Athens, John talked in his father into joining a country club for $30 a year so he could play golf. Our school got out at 1.30, so I could be at the golf course by 3 o'clock. I loved that golf course. When he wasn't in school or playing golf, John had a newspaper route that gave him nice pocket money. The family attended the First Presbyterian Church, and he spent the summers with Mimi's mother, at Fort Valley, Georgia. As a new kid in Athens, however, John didn't fit in with the students who had grown up together. They had boys clubs in the high school, for example, but he wasn't invited to join. It would appear he did focus on his studies as he took Latin, Spanish, and French. As a senior, John got his first taste of military training by taking a course with the Reserve Officer Training Corps, or ROTC. His school certificate shows he graduated as a cadet sergeant. There were 160 graduates in his high school senior class of 1941, and he inserted maybe five of them had cars. The summer after graduation, he tutored University of Georgia students in math for extra money. The only real job I ever had was pulling ropes in the peach orchards. This is tying ropes around scaffolding that keeps heavy-laden fruit trees from breaking. It was blazing hot. No one ever asked how much they were getting paid because you just took whatever they gave you. I think I made 15 cents an hour, 8 a.m. to midnight. That was a lot to help pay for bowling and a nickel a line. John confessed he didn't have a very good idea of what the name of the game was regarding school and studying but his report card showed he was a strong student, at least through high school. That would change when he enrolled in the University of Georgia. Since it was in Athens, Mimi worked as a house mother for the Kappa Alpha fraternity, which did not include her living at the house, but it did allow John to become a frat man in July 1942. It was also a way for him to go wild, he said especially when the Georgia Bulldogs won the Rose Bowl in 1943. Georgia was nine, Georgia had nine, and UCLA was zero. <laughs> it was around Christmas time of his freshman year at the university that his parents realized he wasn't studying as he should. They asked if he wanted to go to North Georgia College, one of four senior military colleges in the nation located in Dahlonega. Fine with me, said John. He lasted for two quarters. <laughs> having, returned, yeah, having returned to the University of Georgia, Don continu John continued his less than illustrious academic record. 
His signature story of that time is about his failing his trigonometry class and the swift action his father took. Knowing that I had failed trigonometry twice, when Daddy met my trig professor on the campus one day, he asked how I was doing. The professor said, John could make an A in my class if he had just class. He's only allowed four cuts, and he's already had his fifth one, and I'm going to have to fail him. During that conversation between his father and the professor, John said he was playing a card game of four hearts with a 21-year-old female student in the student union building. He suddenly sees this look of horror come over her face about the same time he feels his body being lifted out of its chair, his knees knocking the table over, and his being carried with feet dangling above ground to the outside of the building. I love this last, this last sentence is so perfect. Yeah. I am pleased. Yeah, you have to read it. Yeah. I am pleased that my father did not kill me that day, said John. He did manage to earn an A in trigonometry that semester. While John attributes his ultimate success in college, both to Mimi and his father, there was a raw emotional side to the father-son relationship that he could never fully reconcile. Because of his small size and often hyper energy, John proved to be a source of irritation to his father, a 200-pound man who had played college football. John's sister said it was as though her father didn't realize he was picking at his son and making him feel stupid. John himself recalled the time, for example, that his father, as the school principal, decided to group students according to their ability. He put John in the dumb group. Parents fussed about the grouping, particularly those whose children were placed in the dumb group, and Principal Saxon had to reverse his decision. John went to the summer camp where he got a merit badge in canoeing. He said his daddy thought teasing was fun, and he kept telling John how much the family was missing him. John started crying and asked to come home. Another teasing situation took place with the family bull. They had to keep their cow, had to keep for their cow to produce a calf and thus produce milk. Normally, when the bulls were about six months old, John would ride them. One year, he let the bull get a little too big, and he was having a hard time staying on him. I asked Daddy to put me back up on the bull. Daddy thought it was real funny to put me up there backwards. The bull started bucking, and I fell off and got hurt. He said, I don't know what was wrong with Daddy and me. We just never made it. Daddy never could talk with me. In a written history of the family maintained by John's daughter, Selby, his sister said she believed that if John had been bigger and able to play football, his father would have loved him, but he was not. What Pop should have done was take him to the golf course, because he would have been great at that, she said. Pop didn't pay any attention to either one of them, but she didn't know he was supposed to. Pop loved me, and that's all I knew. Fathers during that time, she said, didn't show their emotions to their children. Anne wrote, the sister, Anne wrote, I remember in Quitman, there was a girl who made all these silly noises, and John would copy her because that was cool. 
It just made Pop furious. On that auto trip out west in 1936 that John recalls as a great adventure, his sister remembers they were at a place to buy tickets, and the woman would ask a question, and John would immediately give the answer. Finally, the woman turned to another person and said, it's a good thing they brought Sonny along. Pop heard it, and whenever they stopped at hotels and had to fill in forms, Pop would say, good thing we brought Sonny along. She believed it was meant to tease John, but wondered if it made him feel stupid. There was another time when there were ripe olives in the larder. They disappeared, and John was accused of throwing them away because he didn't like them. He cried and kept saying he didn't, he didn't, but Pop wouldn't give him any slack. It was a shame, she said. When he was a little, John would take a bath and stand in a place to drop. off. Father was standing in front of him, and John, turned, John made a 300-degree turn, and his father became angry. He had meant for John to turn from the back side to the front side so he could dry him off. John's literal understandings was evidently obnoxious behavior, rather a misunderstanding. I'm going to read that one again because almost the, the whole paragraph was muddled. When he was a little boy, John would take a, ba a bath in a tub of water, and then he was to stand in front of the fireplace to dry off. His father was standing in front of him and said, John, turn around. John made a 360-degree turn, and his father became angry. He had meant for John to turn from the backside to the front side so he could dry him off. John's literal understanding of directions was evidently seen as obnoxious behavior rather than a misunderstanding. There was one special time that Anne said she really felt sorry for John. He was little in high school, and I guess he just reacted to that. But one time he got a gla the glamorous girl in his class to go out with him. He was so excited. That Saturday, we had gone to town, and John kept saying, please let's go home. I have to get ready. Well, Pop didn't pay any attention to him, and we stopped at other places on the way home. John was about to jump out of his skin. When we got home, he rushed around to get ready and to get to her house. He called her on the telephone to tell her he was coming and she was gone. John left the house anyway. When he got home and was asked how the date went, he covered the situation and said, it was fine. That was Pop's fault. He should have rushed home for John. In recent years, Anne said she was telling the person how successful her brother was with his book company and that he had done it all he had done it on his own. It would appear that John had learned how to move forward in spite of obstacles, whether physical or emotional. It would also be shown that he was himself an outstanding father to his children. Oh boy, I feel like that's everybody's story. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, our parents can do so much to just mess with us, but then at the end of the day, the only thing we can really do is try and do better with our own kids. Exactly. Just learn. Learn from learn from what we experienced. And that's the bottom line. Take our experiences and learn from them as best we can. I I went to fifteen schools from the fifth grade to the tenth grade, and I'm an only child. So going into fifteen schools in five years, 
because we moved in my dad's work, um, I had to learn to to judge pretty quickly what kids wanted to be my friends because nobody else was friends with them and what kids were just really being nice to me. And I also learned how to be shunned because I was the new kid in a small school. Wow. Well, and there's an old biblical injunction to fathers to not mess with their kids. I can't remember the exact verse or even where it is, but it's like, don't trifle with your children or don't bully your children. And I really think it's probably a tendency of most fathers that whether they think they're helping their kid by toughening them up or they're helping to shepherd them into better behaviors because they don't like what they're seeing at home. I don't know, but historically it's been a thing. So I don't think John's father was unusual. It's just unfortunate for the the son or the daughter who experiences that sort of um, it's, it's malevolent behavior. It really is. So, well, and you know, I learned this chapter was based totally on videotapes that John had told these stories on video for his kids for, to memorialize his history for him to remember these things when he's like 60 years old and he's remembering all of these events as clear as they were yesterday says something for us to remember made an impact well nikki thank you for participating in this show i'm going to finish with some music it's the song i was singing when you came in um this is the song i chose to be the theme for my blog when i started it in 2005 and it's also been a song that my family has sung together in church and in private family gatherings it's called make us one and it's a song that pleads with anyone listening to do what we can to stand in unity in faith and in our hearts. So I'm going to share this song now very humbly. I hope uh, it's a nice way for you to finish the show and anybody who's listening. I'm a singer, but sometimes the technology can play a little bit with, with the sound. But here it is. And Nikki, I hope you have a great week. Thank you. Thank you.
Nikki Hayes, the author of the John Saxon story. We will be back back next week with chapter two. Thank you for stopping by.